Welcome to episode 14 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm here again with Bill Arsenault. Hey guys, what's up? Uh, we are in Skype exile, uh, second time in a row. Um, yeah. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. We're coming to you from opposite ends of New Orleans over the internet. Um, it's been about two weeks since the last time we did this, so uh, Bill, what have you been watching since we last talked? Ooh, uh, well, I, uh, this past Thursday, I caught an advanced screening of The Birth of a Nation, which, uh, yeah, it's been shown in New Orleans, uh, quite, quite a lot, actually. Uh, it's gotten a couple advanced screenings already. I think the one I went to was the last one, the most recent, uh, or probably the final advanced screening. Uh, it was quite the experience. It was a little uncomfortable, um of a movie. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. If you if you could imagine, yes. For metatextual reasons and for the actual reasons. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, you know, for, for many reasons, it's an uncomfortable experience, but it's a very good experience, and I would even say a very important experience to have. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't believe there hasn't been a high-profile movie about that event yet, and that the one we're getting has so much controversy around it for, like, <laughs> something you couldn't even, like plan for you know like it, it, it there's so much going on with that release of that movie that just uh you know never in a million years would i have thought that's how that story would be told on the big screen well there was a uh, movie an exploitation type film that came out called goodbye uncle tom uh back in the i think it was the 70s and it may have been the early 80s and it was kind of done in the vein of a time travel found footage film if you could believe that. Oh, wow. Uh, basically, what it was was a group of filmmakers went back in time and they shot POV-style uh, slavery era. And then um, I think at, at, towards the end, a couple slaves broke free from the timeline and ended up going on a killing spree, <laughs> uh, which, you know, is quite the... The ending. I like the ambition of that whole thing you just explained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it was quite the bold film, but I don't think it got much uh, play, probably because of the controversy around just its content alone. Right. Uh, nowadays, it's a little more, I don't want to say posh or anything, but it, it is kind of more okay, I suppose, like mainstream to, uh, to have movies movies like this that, that talk about such important uh, messages, Yeah, have such important messages. I mean, I saw a uh, early 70s um, Russ Meyer film called Black Snake that's about a slave revolt, and it's just like the grossest exploitation film, so like maybe it's probably better that we didn't get more before now. Like, I, I think <laughs> probably people have more like context and uh, a better way of putting things so that it's not like a gross... Uh... I mean, that one was basically like torture porn... Where like the last ten minutes is the uh, the revenge part, and it just got really ugly. Uh, so so yeah, maybe it was better that we pumped the brakes on that a little bit until people were ready to tell the story from like first of all an actual black perspective instead of like a a, a white guy telling the story. Oh yeah, that, that's that's that. Not that it couldn't be done. It's just it's it's probably better handled the other way, right? Uh, as as you're saying, and of course uh, through exploitation eyes. The uh, the context shifts from being historical and having something important to say to being well st- flat out exploitative. Yeah, the, t- titillating you know, with the violence, titillating, uh, pornographic, yeah. uh, all that. Yeah. 
Well, how, uh, so you thought it was a pretty powerful film overall? Uh, yes, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see it. I, I don't know uh, if I'm going to catch it um, anytime soon. Probably, like, closer to, like, Oscar season, like, early next spring is probably when I'll, like, go for it, you know? Just um, kind of bum-rush all those nominations. Nominees. <laughs> yeah, I, I said that this year, too, but I, I never got around to, like, Spotlight or... Uh, oh, me neither. Uh, I feel bad about Big that. Short. Yeah, big big short. I did get to see, but uh, I think they're both on Netflix now, so it might be time to look yeah. backwards. There's just so much to get to. Um, yeah, I'm so much more likely to go watch something dumb. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I'm I'm just if if it's like a horror or a sci-fi movie, I jump on it, and if it's like an important film, I just take my sweet time until I make myself eat my medicine. You know. Well, did you did you get to see Blair Witch? I did. I uh, I saw that in the theater. I I thought it was pretty good for like a straightforward horror film. Yeah. Um, obviously not reinventing the wheel or anything like that. It's it's not the Adam Wingard, uh, you know, messing with the formula and subverting expectation that you get with like your, your next or the guest. But you know, for like a uh, for like a found footage horror film, it's pretty okay. I re- I really like some of the more heady. Uh, reality shifts in the last half hour. Uh, oh yeah, like how time becomes a blur and uh, how uh, it almost becomes an alien abduction at the end. Yeah, you know? I, I saw a lot of people freaking out over some lights in the end and saying that there was a UFO in the movie, but I think that's uh, that was reading just the, the witch doing horror stuff. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's just supposed to like kind of pull the rug from under you. Like reality is not something you can get a, a handle on in that movie. Uh, which is, I don't think you need to read anything concrete into that. I think it's just like a, a magical event. Uh, it just happens <laughs> to be horrific magic, you know. Horrific magic, yes. Yeah, so you got you gotta uh, clarify that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds a little Disney when you when you don't um, throw the horror on there. But uh, that was that was pretty okay. That wasn't like my favorite thing I've seen recently. Uh, I've been kind of on a um, slump. I, I know we talked about last time I stopped watching movies for like twelve days, <laughs> but. Yeah. Uh, I've, def- I've definitely stopped doing that. Um, the, the only thing that really stands out to me, though, since I took a break was this movie, uh, A Town Called Panic. It's this okay. uh, stop-motion madcap comedy. Uh, it's an animated feature. Um, and it, it's from Belgium. It's like a Bel- it's a Belgian uh, TV show that they mm-hmm. adapted into a, I think, 90-minute comedy. And it kind of looks like Kablam from the 90s. Like it's not, it's not like the Leica Kubo and the Two Strings uh, stop motion where they try to uh, push the art form to its like technical extreme. It's very much you can see someone making this in their living room almost. It's these little tiny toys that they're just moving scene by scene, but it has such a weird manic energy and it's very funny, uh, absurdist, and it has this like kind of slow build to the jokes. Where you're like, I don't really see how this is funny, and then five minutes later, the it the punchlines start rolling in from something they've been setting up, you know. Um, and I, I think it's I think it's very much worth a look. It's it's on Amazon Prime, and it seems like the kind of movie that's slowly getting a cult following. Uh, so if if you're if you're looking for something goofy to watch, uh, A Town Called Panic is definitely a recommended look. Okay, and I believe the Britannia is doing or did. A uh, sort of like a, a series on a town called Panic. Like a, uh, I think I think 
Didn't didn't they come out with a sequel? Yeah, I saw. I went to that over the weekend at Britannia. It's not as good as the feature film, um, but okay. what it was, it's called Double Fun. It was a two two mid length shorts. So it was two shorts, probably about fifteen minutes a piece, uh, and they were paired with all these uh, even shorter films. It's a little strange because it's, uh, I believe, British versions of the show. So there, there's dubs instead of, um, instead of the the subtitles. You get like English actors sort of changing the voices on these characters. You've kind of grown oh, to hear yeah. with the original voices. Uh, but they were they were still fun. Uh, I really like this one thing they did called um, Back to School Panic. If, if you're gonna seek any of the shorts out from that theatrical screening, uh, Back to School Panic is definitely a good watch and a good follow up to the feature film because it, it does have like. They do this kind of weird, uh, almost sci-fi plot where they go inside a pig's mind, and it's like uh, <laughs> almost like being John Malkovich. Like every pop, the whole population of the pig's brain is smaller pigs, and they live in this little pig city. Uh, <laughs> so, so it was it was fun. It was also fun to watch children watch it because I, I couldn't really get a handle on whether or not it was for children or for stoned adults. Um, mm. <laughs> and uh, apparently, the answer is probably both. Because uh, it was a good mix at the uh, screening I went to in the middle of the afternoon, um, but but definitely the movie is more of like the essential experience. Like if you've never heard of a town called Panic, definitely start with the movie and maybe maybe pick up the shorts after the fact. Was there a pungy smell in the air? <laughs> no, the no, no. no it, okay. it was in the middle of the afternoon on a Sunday, so it was pretty uh, you know, it's okay. pretty wholesome event overall. <laughs> Did you you saw Blair Witch as well, right? Yes, I did. Uh, I rather enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't get to see it in Dolby Atmos, which I, I felt was kind of a, you know, like I was missing out. Uh, Dolby Atmos, they just added at AMC Elmwood. Uh, I, I remember passing by that, I think it's Screen 20, uh, and it, it was uh, it had caution tape around it. And I was like, what's what's going on? You know, there's like a city notice on there and everything. And then finally they said, oh, we're releasing Dolby Atmos screening room. And that's basically where you reserve a seat and the sound comes at you from like all directions. Oh, terrifying. <laughs> yeah, ter- and, that, and that Blair Witch was going to be one of the first movies they were going to show that way. I uh, My, my MoviePass uh, app membership doesn't um, work with Dolby Atmos or 3D or IMAX. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is a downside of it, but the upside of it is, you know, very good. I think. Uh, so I didn't they recently went... raise the price of Movie Pass as well? In this area, they raised it by ten bucks, but I haven't been affected by it yet. Oh, okay. It might be something that's coming out in a couple months. You right. Know? But um, but yeah, I saw Blair Witch on its opening night. There were just a few people in the room, just like yoga hosers. Uh, it was just deservedly so in that case <laughs> deservedly so in the case of Yoga Hosers in the case of Blair Witch I felt kind of bad for it's box office returns because um, I, I certainly didn't think it was nearly as bad as some people were saying uh, but at the same time I could see the the, the, the criticisms it being a little you know, perhaps playing it too safe you know for considering it's Adam Wingard you know Mm-hmm. Uh, or Weingard, however you pronounce his last name. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> I just kind of went for it. <laughs> th- th- those two, him and Simon Barrett, are a really good writing duo. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they did, like you said, Your Next, The Guest, and uh, the VHS series, and they're known for their you know their sharp cleverness. And there wasn't a lot of that in this. However, I do contend 
that Blair Witch is kind of a sly secret romance film. <laughs> uh, like, well, it's a doomed romance. It's like on the level of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, uh, well, okay. When I say on the level, let me let me clarify. I don't mean it's like written as well. I don't mean it's as powerful. I don't mean any of that. I just mean it's similar in that it's doomed. Uh, in that sense, like they're not going to come out of this alive. Uh, but there there is kind of a romance going on between uh, uh, Lisa, the documentarian, and. Uh, the guy who's looking for his sister. Uh, and throughout these escapades in the woods, you, you get to learn a lot about these characters in a very short amount of time. Uh, not just those two, but the, their friends and the, the, the redneck couple they bring along with them. Uh, it, it, there's there's a, I think there's a lot of good direction in this, a lot of good direction of actors and of the environment. Um, it just... I don't know. I, I, I guess it just kind of... The movie had the misfortune of being a Blair Witch film. Also, I think critics, uh, I mean, including myself, like, I, I think there's just a lot of pressure based on the talent involved uh, that yeah. there would be some kind of subversion. Uh, and so for for them to kind of return to that, um, that VHS aesthetic, uh, it is kind of a step back, but I don't think there's anything wrong with a straightforward genre film, so I wasn't disappointed. Um, it's just not as good as what they're capable of, you know? Yeah, I didn't mind the DV-VHS aspect of some of the shots, but I think what people did mind was, oh, they're just updating it with drones. They're just updating <laughs> it with earpiece cameras. Yeah. They're just updating it. It's more over the top. Instead of the tent shaking, the tent flies up in the air. Ooh, you know. Uh, and instead of the Blair Witch being this thing you don't see and you're not sure it exists, it's a weird long-limbed alien thing. Ooh, <laughs> you know? and, and I was like, well, yeah, there is that goofy cartoonish aspect, but... I, I don't know. I, I, I felt those those bits actually worked in my case. I, I, I wasn't frightened, but I was certainly kind of shocked. If anything, I'd want more of that. I kind of wanted to see more of that. Yeah, I wanted to see them talk to it. Uh, you know, kind of like, well, no, I don't want to see them talk to it. But, but <laughs> that happened in Cloverfield, where they uh, they actually met the monster, and the monster just ate the guy, which I clapped Yeah, at. yeah. Uh, I was like, yes, they killed the cameraman. That might be uh, one of the few moments of that movie that thrilled me, actually. I'm, I'm not a fan. I, I like Cloverfield. I just didn't like that guy in that role as the cameraman. I don't like first. anybody. I don't, I don't like any of the characters, which is part of the problem. Like, they'll, they'll be <laughs> shouting, like, I can't remember a name off the top of my head, but they'll be like, Where's Dave? Where's Dave? And I'm like, I don't <laughs> know or care about Dave. Like, let him go. Dave uh, is inter interchangeable with Steve. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, well, speaking of, like, found footage and VHS aesthetic, uh, we're about to start talking about um, Trash Humpers from 2010, uh, yes. the Harmony Corinne film. I um, recommended this movie to you. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is your pick. <laughs> I, I, I was very excited when this movie was announced. Uh, I think it didn't ha even have a big announcement. It was just... Harmony Corinne's making made this movie on his own time, and here it is. And he <laughs> he kind of just released it like I'm going to release DVDs, I'm going to release VHS tapes, and I'm going to release it as a 35 millimeter uh, thing that you can order. You know, but there's only a few copies of it on 35 millimeter. And then he even said he even said I don't mind if people download this film. I even don't mind if they project it in a toilet, <laughs> like literally in a toilet bowl. And and I thought to myself, wow. That that would be an amazing installation piece. 
Tra- <laughs> trash humpers in a toilet bowl. Uh, or one of those, like, pop-up cinema things they do in Great Britain, uh, where it's like, you know, like Back to the Future, where they have a DeLorean set up and you can sit next to it and watch the movie. You know, this is like, well, it's trash humpers, but it's you have to watch it in the toilet. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of uh, sort of diffuses a lot of criticism instantly. You're like, it's already being posed as a piece of shit. Like, <laughs> kinda, the movie kind of is. Uh, yeah. You know, well, it, well, before before we get too far into it, um, okay. a- after that we are gonna talk about uh, Richard Kelly's entire catalog as well. Uh, he's he's only directed three films and he and he wrote one other. Uh, and for that, uh, my friend Rick Kelly from uh, San Francisco is gonna join us over Skype. Uh, and we're gonna come right back and talk about trash humpers. See, what people don't understand is that we choose to live like free, free, free people. <coughs> you know, we choose to live like the people should live. I don't follow no rules on Sunday. I don't eat no pies on Monday. I don't play no games on Tuesday. I don't cry myself to sleep on Wednesday. It's all just, I don't know, one long game, I guess you could call it. One long, long game. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where uh, the hosts of the show bounce back and forth, recommending films to each other. Uh, last time Bill was on the show, I made him watch uh, Flesh Eaters from the 60s. Uh, yes. And kind of because of the Blair Witch context of just stuff that's been coming out lately and uh, sort of the general criticism of where found footage is in a cultural aspect, um, Bill thought it would be interesting to go back and watch Trash Humpers from 2010. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and let you introduce the movie. What, what is Trash Humpers? <laughs> Trash Humpers is probably the greatest film that's ever been made next to uh, Pink Flamingos uh, in that vein of just being literal dirt. Um uh, of course, I'm being a little facetious here, but uh, Trash Humpers, I, I, I really enjoy. It is a Harmony Corinne film, and if you don't know who Harmony Corinne is, he is the man that wrote or co-wrote Kids back from the mid-90s. He also wrote and directed Gummo, uh, Julian Donkey Boy, Mr. Lonely, uh, and the recent Spring Breakers with James Franco, uh, where he plays an, a rapper named Alien. Uh <laughs> <laughs> That's important to note that. You, you can't go in without <laughs> knowing that. Uh, the movie Trash Humpers is... The, the, it's found footage in almost the literal sense in that it's meant to be seen as if you were walking down a sidewalk and you see a VHS tape laying in the garbage. And, you, and it's not labeled. You don't know what's on it, but you take it home anyways and you see and you play it and that's that's what it is. Um the the aesthetic is key here. Uh, everything about this film is VCR, you know, head to head dub. Um, it's uh, the titles are done, I think, in camera, uh, except maybe for the end credits. But uh, like the main titles are done like as if it was typed up on the camera itself. Yeah, it looks like a old old like a uh, child's birthday party uh, title. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it looks looks just like that. Yeah, and if the film is if the film can be can hold claim to having a plot, it it, it would be that it follows a, a group of uh, ruffians dressed in uh, old man 
old lady masks. Uh, it's not clear if they're actually supposed to be elderly or if they're just wearing these masks and they're different people underneath. It's not quite clear. Uh, what is clear is that they go around town causing mischief and meeting wackier characters. Uh, like, for example, a Siamese twin uh, person who's attached via um, what appears to be uh, later hosen or uh, some sort of polyester fabric uh, <laughs> by their heads. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, they 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 eat pancakes uh, with soap. They go around humping trash cans, of course, and sucking on tree limbs in very suggestive ways, and steal babies and break TVs and do all kinds of stuff. It's almost supposed to be like a... I believe Harmony Corinne said it's supposed to be sort of a... Uh, allegory or a metaphor for uh, America, if you can believe it. Uh, I think he's. I don't think he's going out on a. You know, I don't think he's reaching a bit. I think he's. He's probably right. It's just. I mean, if that was his goal, I think Spring Breakers was probably more uh, successful. I think Spring Breakers was more successful in um, capturing America. Yeah, the current generation of young people. Ah. Uh, you know, like millennials and. Uh, you know, that feeling of entitlement and things like that. But um, as far as trash humpers, I mean, it, I think I think when he meant America, he meant the kind of America he sees, which is uh, downtrodden, uh, not even middle class, uh, just almost like hiding in the woods kind of America, which makes sense if you follow Harmony Corinne. That's the kind of thing he's more geared towards. The, the misfits and the mistakes, you know? Uh, so I, I don't think this movie sums up America in in the way that he thinks, but uh, it could, it's possible I could be misquoting him. Um, but it definitely does uh, express a very disturbing and unnerving uh, possibility in every neighborhood across this country and that is that <laughs> like this this is what I thought when I watched the movie that I don't really know these people that live near me they they could have they could have these kind of tapes that they've recorded and left around you know town uh, and do I really know much about where I'm living you know these are those are the things I thought of when I saw this film that and oh my god what am I watching uh, but in a nutshell, that is that is trash humpers. It is it is probably the I would say the quintessential found footage film because it's literally found footage. Uh, even though it was even though it was okay, it's not literally found footage, but it's as close to what a narrative could get to being found footage. Yeah, I'm not sure how serious you're supposed to take that. Like I I know the, the original concept was that he was going to leave uh, a recording or several VHS copies of this strategically different places and have people discover it sort of organically. Um, but yeah, he, Harmony he, is known for his audacious and weird ideas. He even wanted to do a Buster Keaton-style uh, fist fight movie where he just picks fights with random people on the street and risk his own life. Uh, I I don't know what goes on in his head most of the time. You know, he's, <laughs> so, yeah... 
You know, the, the, that would have been interesting though if you just left tapes around town and they, with re, with requests that you uploaded or something. I don't know. Yeah, I like the idea of uh, actually having it be found footage so that it has some sort of like real world legitimacy as like uh, an object that someone found, whether or not it was left in te- intentionally. Um, it's it's a very interesting concept, but with, like with a lot of like high art concepts, um, I have a I have kind of a hard problem with the lack of effort in the execution, uh, which yeah. I think is supposed to be like intentionally nihilistic here, and you're supposed to be sort of off put by it. Um, but there's this whole wave of like Gen X '90s directors that I feel like he was riding on the back end of. Um, I, I guess uh, probably Larry Clark, who he originally worked with, would be more of a um, genuine part of that group. But it's it's like a no effort as a virtue kind of thing, um, hmm. where the lack of effort and like slackerdom is seen as like this something to aspire to. And I don't re- always respond well to that in movies. Like I I like my movies to feel cinematic. Uh, even yeah. when they're even when they're garbage, like I liked them to feel cinematic. Um, so I I was already coming from a place watching this where I, this really wasn't for me. Like I I think Spring Breakers and Gummo is probably more the mode that I like my Harmony Korine movies in. Um, but I did find so many parts of this like disturbing, and it's interesting to hear you say that he thought this was a portrait of America. Just because it's such an ugly, gross portrait, <laughs> uh, and he turns these things like sort of these uh, Tennessee uh, cut off from the modern world personalities, telling these you know like homophobic and racist jokes at length. He turns that into this like horror film feeling almost. Like the, the most found footage movies you watch are horror films, and this film is horror in like a sort of abstract art kind of way where you're like disturbed by the images even yeah. though there's no real plot and it's just like nihilistic old people fucking garbage um <laughs> and then telling weird racist jokes I, I i think there's like so much to chew on here but i don't necessarily enjoy the act of watching it play out oh huh. Well, it's interesting you bring up, like, slackerdom and uh, uh, lack of style, uh, you know, when it comes to Harmony Corinne, because I, f- I feel like this movie has that. It's not just the aesthetic. You know, it's not just I'm looking at the aesthetic of VHS and and putting the style and c- cinematic quality, uh, associating it with that. Um, I-, I feel like it actually is uh, pretty cinematic. It's not... I mean, granted, you know, you're not going to see this projected uh, in too many movie theaters. The Zeitgeist may have, might have shown it. Uh, actually, <laughs> no, no, the Zeitgeist didn't show it. That's the thing. The, our local theater, Zeitgeist, I tried getting Rene Broussard to show it when it came out. I emailed him many times and was like, dude, you got to get Trash Humpers. And he's like, I don't like Harmony Corinne. <laughs> he's like I'm not I'm not showing trash humpers. Fair enough. I was like, well, that's your theater, but at the same time, I think this would be really cool, you know. I mean, uh, I saw a Tim and Eric million dollar movie there and it's got that same kind of uh <laughs> fuck all who cares uh attitude towards I, story, I, you know. Yeah, I I appreciate that. I th- I think I believe it was Brett Easton Ellis who said something along the lines of uh even no emotion is still kind of an emotion, you know, it's still mm-hmm. something 
to uh, to look into. You know, it's not it's not like if someone who's just a blank slate in wooden that's something you should uh, look down upon. You know, he he kind of says like like he looks at his movies like um, uh, the Informers, which was a movie he wrote in um, the book of and was made uh, with Mickey Rourke and a couple other actors. Well, of course, it has to have a couple other actors, and it's about uh, k- kind of like this this the slew of Los Angelinians, uh, who young people who just don't care, who are just kind of carefree and they don't feel. You know, you, you almost have to prick them in order to get any kind of reaction out of them. And people, uh, critics, uh, very much uh, wrote negatively about that. They said, like, you know, this movie has no soul. It's just emotionless. And Brett Easton Ellis came back that, yes, that's the point. It's supposed to be that way, you know? And, and he's, you know, he's like, why, why, you know, I don't understand your criticism of this when you're nailing it right on the head. That's exactly what this is. That's, you know, should be looked at and studied. Uh, in my opinion, The Informers isn't a good movie, but it's not because of that. It's, <laughs> it's because it's just not very well made. But nihilism and slackerdom, uh, those kind of things, you know, I, I I almost take a little bit of, not offense, but I guess I feel like I should defend Harmony Corinne here, like, <laughs> uh, in some ways. And I'm struggling to with Trash Humpers because Trash Humpers, he goes well out of his way to piss people off. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's even there in the title. It's like, when you're watching the film, it's like, what would you expect? I told you this would be people humping trash, and that's exactly what I'm delivering to you. Um, <laughs> but not that there aren't, like, very interesting moments in there. Like, I, I really like uh, the monologue in the car where uh, one of the main trash humpers is saying, like, life's I, I a big that, game. I believe that's that, actually Harmony Corrine. Oh, that, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Where, yeah, where he's like, uh, life's a game, we're going to win it, other people just go along with this like mundane schedule, and we're actually living life. Uh, but his version of living life is, you know, smashing boomboxes in, in the garbage, and like, yelling, get that trash pussy at his friend while his friend humps a wall. <laughs> uh, so it's a very, like... I, I see moments in here that I, I get what's going on, and I get the idea behind it. I just wish it was packaged in a more cinematic way. Like, uh, I, I I really like the, uh, acapella folk songs that the, uh, female trash humper sings. I I think that's his wife, right? Uh, right. So she sings these sort of acapella folk songs and they're really weird and very like mountains of Tennessee, uh, eerie. Um, and they sort of exist in a void. But if there was some sort of uh, if there was some sort of like play with that sound with the camera movement or something, and you just don't get that here, it really is just like a document that someone just left behind. Like this is what we did for two weeks while wearing these masks, and we called it a movie. Well, I think I think it's a little more than that. I I compared a little bit to <clears throat> excuse me the um the diaries of Mad Men. You know, like, especially now with, with video technology and all this, people can record themselves and give it to anyone. Like, for example, the guy who tried killing Bjork, uh, I forget his name. I think it was Ricardo Lopez. Uh, but he, he sent a package to Bjork that was like a, like a, an acid bomb. It didn't work. But he killed himself on camera and left his video diaries 
for all to see, and it shows this descent into uh, mental illness and into just mania, and it's really horrifying to watch. Uh, I only watched bits of it in a documentary, and I, I couldn't even get through it because I yeah, was I can't do that. So, so legitimately uh, frightened by it. But there are a lot of like cop shows that show, uh, or not, maybe not a lot, but there were some cop shows in the past, maybe in an exploitative manner, but they showed, like, um, you know, it was like real crimes. You know, they showed, like, this, this uh, arsonist who was, like, taking video footage of his arson, and he's giving commentary while he's, you know, recording it, and it's really, like... Like it's really out there. It's it's not it's not particularly deep commentary from him, but the fact that he's giving it is deep. Uh, so I would say that this movie is kind of more Trash Humpers. It's less about the style of how it's captured, even though that's that's definitely front and center, you know, because it's a diary on a VHS camera, and that's the big aesthetic of the film. It's more about what they're doing and what's happening, uh, and the images that stick with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, kind of like, all right, she's singing those songs, you know, and juxtapose that with how she looks with her environment and what she's currently doing. Like, she steals a baby at one point while she's singing a song. And it's like, what is, what exactly does that mean to you? You know, what, what, what feeling does that get at? uh, What reaction does that get out of you? Um, I think that's kind of more what, the movie's aiming at than it is uh, cinematic in the photography style or uh, in the photography way or the uh, editing way. It's really more like stripped, stripped down, and and it's just okay. I'm. It's these the series of images that may not completely make sense in a pattern, but do kind of make some kind of a nightmarish. Uh, logic, if that makes any sense. It, it does. I, I, I guess I just have an aversion to this kind of art, like, in general, Yeah. that just kind of blocks me. Like, it's, it's kind of like the difference between performance art and poetry. Like, the moments of this movie that are poetry, I respond to very well. Uh, there, there's this one speech, I believe, from the Siamese twin about how much better the world would be if no one had a head. That's <laughs> uh, a very prepared speech. It's given in a lackadaisical, lackadaisical way, uh, and it seems like it's kind of off the cuff, and you don't really know where he's going with it. But it's obviously a prepared speech. Um, the the songs aren't improved; they're prepared. And I I, I just I, I respond better to that kind of polish than I do with the uh, performance art part, where it's like let's put these people in this situation and see what happens. Um, and that's, that's totally coming from me personally as an audience. And when I think back on the film, I appreciate it more than in the moment when I'm watching it. I feel like there's like work on my part as an audience that I don't necessarily like to put in. Um, <laughs> but other people respond to that very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, th- I think another recent example of something I've seen was, uh, David Lynch's Inland Empire. Yes. Um, people love that movie. Like it's listed sometimes. It's like one of the best movies of the two thousands, twenty tens. I can't do it. I, I, it's just oh, not for man. me. You know, it's <laughs> exhausting. 
That's um, one of my favorite films. Uh, literally, <laughs> it's my favorite David Lynch film, but it's also one of my favorite films uh, ever. If you go to my letterbox page, that's one of the four. And so, so I'm kind of oh man. That, that, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know. Like, I, I feel like I, if you like Trash Humpers, you would love Inland Empire. You know, like it's, it, it in some ways it almost is like the more polished, like poetic version of this movie, in in that it's aggressively ugly, um, in yeah, the same way. It's the digital aesthetic that's right. That's, that's the, St- the standard opposite. definition horror, <laughs> <laughs> consumer grade horror. Uh, but uh, no. Um, I, I, I can see that point. I mean, um, you know, some people don't like performance art. I, I can't say I I go out of my way to watch performance art, but um, I do appreciate I, uh, the bravery it takes to, oh, do, yeah. to do stuff like that, um, even if it makes no sense, even if it's something completely ridiculous and cliche or indulgent. Usually it probably is more often than not indulgent because in order to do something like that, it's very personal and, uh, you're projecting something from within, um, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I try not to discount a movie based on uh, preconceived notions, even though I go. That's that's usually the main way I choose what movie I'm going to watch next is based <laughs> off of preconceived notions. I try my best not to go into a movie once I've chosen it, and you know, okay, if this movie goes this way, um, I'm just not going to respond to it you know I, I i i don't know i try my best to give every movie a chance oh yeah for sure i know, I know you do too i know you have to too, too as well but um I, which I, which is the reason why i I'll, I'll go out of my way to watch spring breakers in the movie theater but like this one and julian donkey boy i've kind of put them off um just because i know enough about them to know that it's not really my speed you know okay. um but that's not that's not saying that it's worthless i'm, I'm just uh yeah yeah it's just it's so hard for me to connect with stuff like this sometimes. <laughs> the, these are movies, especially Julian Donkey Boy, which is a different kind of movie uh, from Trash Humpers, but it's it's kind of in the same vein in in that it demands a lot of the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked how you, you mentioned that a little while ago that it, it really these movies request a lot of the people watching them, and a lot of times when people go to movies, they don't want to have demands put upon them they you know the most they want is put on 3d glasses that's (laughs) that's that's it they don't want you know much else uh but i go to movies and i kind of want to be challenged uh that's just me personally on a personal level yeah Uh, and i think that i think there's a way to do that like poetically though like uh under under the skin has some like improv to it and has some like candidness to it and it's open and you have to like work for meaning in that film but i still found it to be more like it's so it's also like sleek and cinematic in a way that i respond to yeah um and that's usually my window into these kind of things like it can't be i can get into something that's ugly and misshapen if it's uh if it's fun and i can get into something empty if it's beautiful but i have a hard time when something's ugly and empty like that <laughs> You know what I mean? And I feel like this movie is ugly and empty Ooh. purposefully, and it's well done, but I, it's just not something I can usually connect with. Yeah, I don't know if it, I don't know if I go so far as empty. Definitely ugly. I mean, this uh, you want to talk about a movie that you just that fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down? That's <laughs> that's this, but 
you know, I, I I wouldn't go so far as to call it empty. I mean, I think there is something behind it and underneath it. It's just, uh, like with most movies, I think it's a matter of, it's kind of like what they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, there's usually going to be a general consensus, like, as to what the meaning was, but, um, it, it's like with me with poetry. I have an easy time, or I like to think I have an easy time understanding film, but I have a very difficult time understanding poetry. I'll never forget, I was in a class in college, we were reading something from, um, I think it was T.S. Eliot, and, uh, I thought it was about one thing completely different from everyone else. And I felt like the biggest moron on the planet after after they talked about what what they what they understood it to be, and and then later I thought on it. I was like, well, maybe I was kind of right. You know, maybe. For well, me, yeah. As long as you have something to back up your reading in the text, I don't I don't see why that's that's ever wrong. Yeah, I, I guess. You know, but but still, what I what I'm getting at is, uh, you know, to to each his own kind of thing. You know, like yeah. every person is going to have a different. Hopefully, different interpretation. Some people are gonna have the same. Some people are gonna have different. And um, uh, I think Trash Humpers is one of those movies <laughs> that if you can get through it, which admittedly it's a it's a hard watch, you know, because there's only so much humping you can take. Uh, <laughs> and I, I mean that like both literally and figuratively, uh, like. Just there's only so much humping you can take, you know. They and, they tire out themselves. They they do a lot more humping in the first half than they do in the second half. <laughs> well, they got to deliver on their promise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but once you get through all that, I think there is something uh, uh, that you can crack open on the inside of it and uh, and maybe even cherish uh, and cherish beyond the fact that it exists. Uh, like at first, when I when I got the DVD, I was like, oh my god, I own Trash Humpers. You know, that just on that level, it was just, I have trash humpers. But then when I watched it, I kind of got, all right, there's more to this movie than just it being crazy. <laughs> and, and, but that, uh, that DVD cover to me, that high contrast photograph of them in the bathroom, yeah. uh, like, I love that image more than I liked most of the images in the movie, which is that same, like, gloss, you know, uh, that I'm talking about. Okay, like so, that, so you're saying I, if I, it had a little bit more finesse and... and uh, like more of an eye for style and uh, yeah. took more chances outside of the VHS uh, camera that it was stuck inside of. Yeah, it's it's not like the means don't bother me so much as like if you're gonna have those means, I th- I think you do need to step it up a little bit in the content. Um, okay. But obviously, the goal of the movie was to not do that. So that, that's me wanting something out of this that it's not, you know? I'm asking it to be a different animal. But it can't be. Like, <laughs> there's, there's nothing it can do, yeah. Right. It was just, it, this was the cards it was dealt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I ask you, just uh, before we wrap up, like, what do you think this says about found footage as an art form? Because I know you brought this up in the context of Blair Witch being released recently, so I, I was just curious why this was the first one that came to your mind. Well, uh, a couple reasons why this was the first one that came to mind. First, whenever anyone recommends a movie to me, I like to push buttons. <laughs> uh, sometimes the go-to movie for me to recommend to someone is Sallow, The 120 Days of Sodom. If, if you can get through that movie and appreciate it, we're going to be friends very quickly. Um <laughs> 
But also, I like the poo-poo platter. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was such a scene, wasn't it? And then the guy had, like, shown his butthole to everybody. He was like, hey, check it out. It looks good. Huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, um, I picked I picked this not just because it pushes buttons, but also uh, in the context of Blair Witch, you know, uh, I had just gotten out, you know, I had just seen it, and it didn't really do anything particularly surprising. However, Trash Humbers, I felt, was one of the few found footage films to be almost exactly what it was saying it was going to be. And on top of that, changing the genre and being clever with it. Like, oh, wow, this is actually all on VHS, all within VCR, and it's supposed to be in the context of something you find on the street. Uh, It kind of reminds me of... um, uh, this other found footage film, which is a legit found footage film called Decasia, the Decay of Film, uh, by Bill Morrison, a really great filmmaker who, whose specialty is he uses actual decayed film from like the 1920s or the 10s or whatever, and he chops it together into like a really artistic uh, narrative. He even did one on Frankenstein called Spark of Being. Uh, very, very good stuff. Uh, I, w- I would highly recommend seeking that. In fact, I think Spark of Being is on IMDb for free. But um, uh, I picked uh, Trash Humpers for that reason, but also because it it very much uh, it plays with the genre and is completely unexpected. Um, I would even put, believe it or not, I would even put Apollo 18 in that vein. Uh, I know a lot of people are like, oh, Apollo 18, it's found footage on the moon. But I'm like, exactly, it's found footage on the moon. It's it's government withheld found footage that the astronauts shot from their perspective, you know. And I've never like, heard of that. I was like, that's something I would do if I were in middle school, that I wanted to have done in middle school, something crazy like that. And, and not just like, oh, they're in a haunted house. You know. Right. You know, just the, the, the line going across, like, on the, the heart monitor, like, Beep, you know, like no, I, we've seen quarantine, we've seen wreck, we've seen all that stuff. You know, give me something different. You know, go to the moon. Why not? <laughs> you know? That's that's the uh, part of the Martian I, I enjoyed last year was just him talking to the camera. Oh yeah, uh, that was that was really fun. Yeah. The rescue mission of that movie, I could take or leave. I don't really care that much, but I actually enjoyed just him being on Mars, talking to himself and kind of going crazy <laughs> that, with that, his Viking and potatoes. <laughs> Viking and potatoes. <laughs> He's like, "There's no one who could tell me not to do this." <laughs> he just dips it in it. He's like, "I ran out of ketchup 15 days ago." I was like, "Oh man, I feel for you." <laughs> Well, um, yeah, like I said, I, I this isn't something I would normally seek out. I do like being pushed in the way that you're saying, like, someone made me watch Salo at some point. Uh, James made me watch Martyrs on this show before, and that's yeah. not something I would have so- sought out. Because like, I do gravitate towards, I don't know, bread and circuses. Like, I really like, uh, you know, easy, cheap thrills with my art. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I'm, I'm comfortable with that, but I do like being made uncomfortable as well. Um, I, I, okay, just well, kind of final thoughts on this real quick. I yeah. did think um, one of the funnier aspects to me was looking this up on Letterboxd <laughs> and seeing um, the only list that came up for it was uh, movies where someone fillets a tree. Yes. And Trash Humpers was the one film listed in the list, <laughs> which made me laugh. 
but also reminded me of A Dirty Shame, which I think has the John Waters film, I think has a uh, kind of a similar vibe, but more in the cartoon area that I'm, I'm used to, you know, yeah. where it's like oversexed people sort of working their way towards like a religious oblivion uh, <laughs> and it not really meaning anything beyond that. Um, which is probably why I've seen a dirty shame like two dozen times and I've never seen this film before in my life. Oh, but wow. but I, I did I did appreciate being uh, pushed a little bit uh, here. So I, I don't want to make it sound like I was overly negative on the film. <laughs> it, it was definitely an experience that I should have been pushed to watch sooner. Um, it's just not something I ever would have watched on my own. Okay, well next time I, I guarantee you I will not send you a Serbian film. Oh God! See, that's something I never want to watch. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to watch it again either. To be honest with you, but uh, you know, or like Dogtooth is not something I ever want to see. Uh, you know, Dogtooth or like Inside or there's just like a, a list of films that it's like I know that's gonna be an ordeal and I don't I don't need to put myself through it. Well, Dogtooth ain't that bad. I mean, it's got some it's not that bad. It's not... Yeah. Well, um, anything else you want to say about Trash Humpers on the way out? Uh. <laughs> what is there to say? It's trash humpers. <laughs> I, I, Get that I, I trash pussy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that 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 tagline should have been on the cover of the film. Get that trash pussy. I feel like they uh, really captured the spirit of the film with that line. <laughs> this is an epic Los Angeles crime saga. And you're researching your role. You play a cop. You want to do right along? Yes, exactly. But I'm also directing the film. It takes place in the near future. Right. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Hmm. The basic concept is this. I play an LAPD cop who isn't who he seems. He's a paranoid schizophrenic who has a supernatural gift. He sees things. And he senses a change in the city. Crime suddenly skyrockets for no apparent reason. The world is coming to an end. And he's the only one who can see the truth. What's the truth? My character, he realizes that the apocalyptic crime rate is because of global deceleration. The rotation of the Earth is slowing down at a rate of point zero, 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 six miles per hour each day, disrupting the chemical equilibrium in the human brain, causing very irrational criminal behavior. How does he uh, stop the global deceleration? Oh, he can't stop it. There is no stopping what can't be stopped. Only God! Can stop it. But the New York Times said God is dead. And now it's time for our feature conversation. Uh, we're about to discuss all four films written and or directed by Richard Kelly. Uh, this is sort of an extension of our movie of the month feature on the website. We've been discussing the box all month. Uh, joining for this again is Bill Arsenault. And, and Rick Kelly, uh, not to be confused with the Richard Kelly, is another Richard Kelly. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's caused a lot of confusion in my life, but you know. 
Sometimes you just have to overcome the things that, that confront you. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Rick writes for Luddite Robot. You you are Luddite Robot. Yeah, it's, ba- it's basically just me. It's kind of a one-man operation. Uh, yeah, com is my, uh, my website. It's film reviews, uh, critiques, commentaries, occasional interviews, and um, just whatever I feel like doing about film. Yeah, I, I love keeping up with that, man. That's probably, like, my favorite, like, person I actually communicate with on a weekly basis, like, reading your stuff every day is awesome. So I'm really glad to have you on the phone. Thanks, man. I'm glad to be here. And you're calling in from San Francisco, right? Uh, actually, Berkeley. Berkeley. Yeah, cool. Cool. Oh, wow. Okay, um, so just kind of jumping right into it, uh, Richard Kelly, uh, he's a director from Texas, uh, sort of made a name for himself in 2001 with the film Donnie Darko, which I believe most people would probably remember from being 14 and loving Donnie Darko, and then maybe rethinking that over time. Uh, I, I gotta say, I, I really appreciated this film when it came out in 2001. I was the right age. Uh, it was it was a good sort of art house training wheels film for me. Uh, it's got this like sci-fi indie romance uh, vibe to it that I really responded to. And then I got kind of embarrassed by how much I was into it. And then going back for this most recent watch after probably a good ten year break. Uh, I, I sort of regained my love for it and I, I really appreciated this this v- viewing more than probably the last two or three times I watched it. So I, w- I was just curious if uh, y'all had kind of a similar experience. Yeah, I, I caught it in college actually. I, I, I went through a period of time from 2001 to about 2006 where I hadn't heard of Donnie Darko. I saw it uh, on DVD at Walmart. Uh, I passed it by on the rack and I was like, "What's this? It's a it's it's a guy with a skeleton body. What? You know, I, I wasn't exactly sure what what the deal was. And then my friends told me, Bill, you have to watch this film. You know, we got to show it. You know, for everyone and, and watch it. And at the time, I was helping out in an organization in college that showed films to other students. So I said, okay, well, let's watch Donnie Darko, whatever. And we watched the theatrical cut, and it really amazed me. I, I rather liked it. I still do. Uh, I have both that and the director's cut. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, there was just so much promise with Richard Kelly in that film. Uh, I felt uh, promise that we will talk about later with Southland Tales, of course. <laughs> but uh, which we could argue. I mean, there, there's arguments to be made on both sides of that. But but when it comes to Donnie Darko, I mean, it's 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 interesting that it came out in 2001. I think it came out around the time of. Uh, 9/11, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, not quite on the dot, but around that time. And considering how much that ended up changing uh, Richard Kelly's mindset for his next projects, but also how it kind of represented his mindset for Donnie Darko. You know, the whole airplane crash and uh, the time travel aspect and changing things and you know. Uh, paranoia and anxiety, you know, uh, a lot of interesting stuff, you know, that, that you could see as a coincidence, uh, lining up with nine 11. That's, that's, I'm not trying to get into a conspiratorial thing, but I'm saying it's just very interesting to talk about. And, uh, Donnie Darko remains as one of my, uh, not personal favorites, but definitely a film I, I love to discuss and talk about. 
Totally. Uh, I think it came out in October of 2001. So seriously, you know, it was only like a, a month out, really, a month and a half or something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty deep. I saw Donnie Darko um, years and years ago, I think more than a decade ago now. Um, and I always kind of, I have like this weird thing where I kind of associated it with uh, like dudes in college. Like Donnie Darko <laughs> and it was up there with like Fight Club and like the things that that like my non-movie friends were like really weirdly into. And I watched it, but I, I actually really remembered it mostly in kind of snippets. Um, it didn't make a huge impact on me, actually. Uh, I think maybe I was too stoned at the time, even for Donnie Darko. <laughs> uh, you know, like, whatever. But I remembered the rabbit, obviously. I remembered the sort of, you know, the mindfuck of time travel and what universe are we in and all the rest of that and uh, whatever. But I watched it again, um, just two days ago now. And uh, I actually really enjoyed it. I, it was funny to, to catch all the things um, that I'd forgotten about. For instance, just like the all the people who were in the cast, I'd forgotten Seth Rogen had anything to do with this movie. Oh, yeah, I had no idea who he was when I watched this. Yeah, I couldn't. That was that was a little shocking. Um, so there were things like that. But, uh, you know, and then, and then like Noah Wiley's there. Drew Barrymore's there. They do the E.T. homage. There's like all this stuff going on. And, uh, you know, it was it was enormously entertaining as a debut. It still seems looking back on it now, at least um, I can feel like the kind of the, the promise that people always refer to uh, when they refer to it, because it's a pretty ambitious debut and a pretty you know, um, accomplished one, I think, uh, even if it has its, its problems, like all debuts do. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. I really had, I had a lot of fun watching it again, especially with people who, like me, hadn't seen it in 15 years, you know? I, I think I tracked my relationship with this movie on the, on the latest watch, where I, I think it works as a narcissistic fantasy for, like, you know, gloomy teens, uh, and when I was a gloomy teen when I watched this, I was like probably 15 years old, I identified with that character so much and that um, sort of fantasy of like attending your own funeral and seeing like how much people would miss you if you died uh, oh. <laughs> as like a weirdo outsider where you're pretty much invisible anyway. And uh, I, I, got, I got to connect with that as a teen and then growing up with the film and entering my twenties, I was like, man, I can't believe how much I enjoyed that movie. <laughs> like it was just embarrassed me that I was that like new metal kid who like really wanted to be this, like, uh, I don't know, uh, mentally unstable teenager. And then, right. um, going back and watching it as an adult, it, it is posed as that kind of fantasy. It's literally, a kid's fantasy about narcissism, like about how much he would be missed if he wasn't there and like what his life would be like after he dies. Uh, and it works. Uh, like it, it is hitting that aesthetic, but it, it knows what it's doing and it, it does work as, as that kind of fantasy. So I appreciate think, it more now at the distance. <laughs> do you think Donnie Darko was into Limp Bizkit? Oh, totally. He would, or at least Nine Inch Nails and like Rage Against the Machine and that kind of stuff. Like pro maybe maybe the higher end of it, but it was set in the '80s, so he just didn't have access to oh, Limp Bizkit. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's, he didn't have access to. Look at the soundtrack too, though. He, you know, Richard Kelly is like fucking needle dropping that with like the Smiths and uh, you know, obviously Mad World and all this business. Um, 
So it's kind of going to that. It, I think it's like aimed straight at what you're saying. It, it wanted you to like this movie. It worked <laughs> so well. <laughs> There's no way I can ever hear uh, Killing Moon without like picturing them descending the stairs after losing their virginity. You know, like it's that that movie hijacked that song. Yeah, totally. It's, it's it plays as like 30% music video. But uh, going back, like, seeing his career after the fact, I would like to see him go back to this headspace. Like, I'd like to see him do a sort of romantic Halloween season spooky sci-fi movie again. Like, I I think he works really well in this headspace. I remember a while back, Richard Kelly announced that he was – it was announced through, like, a press release, I think, but he also – put it out on his Twitter that his next project was going to be a Nicolas Cage starring, which immediately had me, Right. by the way. Just Nicolas Cage, okay. But uh, starring movie about a lawyer in the South. And I thought, oh. Like, come on, Kelly. You, no, you do what you're good at. Do do the sci-fi, do the... You know, I'm not saying don't reach out, but I am saying like, it's like after years of doing bold crazy projects to various effects, you know, you, you don't pull back. You go weirder. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he could have uh, got a, a really weird cage performance. I mean, I just watched Left Behind not that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible, and you guys should not watch it, but... Uh, it's not very good. Yeah, oh, so you've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> also, I had to see it. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, you know, if... if Anyone could get a, a cagey performance on a cage. I think Richard Kelly might be able to pull it up. At one point, he was directed to. I mean, he was attached to direct that film, Knowing, where uh, Nick Cage like foresees the end of the world, which is right. such a perfect project for him. Like, I can't believe that didn't happen. And I like Knowing as it is, but if it was a Richard Kelly joint, I imagine it would be even more uh, over the top in its like ambition. You know? Definitely. Yeah, I would like to see it. Um. Yeah, when we watched uh, we watched um, Left Behind for the site, I, we, me and James watched it drinking, and uh, after the fact, we were like, we can't really review that because um, it wasn't for us. So we just kind of collaborated and wrote like twelve nice things I can say about Left Behind. <laughs> Left Behind is an interesting series for me because uh, I, I write for and podcast for the website MovieBoozer.com sometimes, and we decided collectively to watch all three of the original Kirk Cameron Left Behind oh, films. Oh, Jesus. And that was a fun experience. Like, we just had fun goofing off, riffing on it, you know, drinking, that kind of thing. But when I saw the Left Behind Nicolas Cage film in theaters, I was left deflated and disappointed because he <laughs> it wasn't Nicolas Cage going crazy or doing anything outrageous. He was just like, oh, Jesus is coming back? Okay. <laughs> I know. It was yeah. so depressing. I was depressed throughout that whole movie. I really thought uh, there might be a great thing. Apart from him just shouting Chloe's name, I thought there might be a thing. <laughs> yeah. Or the, there was something about the watches, right, where he figures out what's going on just based on people's watches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, that was, was, was kind of all right. Yeah. Well, um, how do you all feel about this as a left-behind story? Like, Do you think this is an, uh, an interesting take on uh, fate and... Uh, sci-fi or is that all just like kind of bullshit uh so he can do those needle drop like 80s nostalgia moments or, or is it kind of like a, a success i would call it a success uh in those uh you know in those themes uh 
because I didn't think of the film uh, now that you're mentioning it about being narcissistic youth and you know like what would it be like if I, I could attend my own funeral that kind of attitude uh, I didn't think of it like that when I first saw it when I first saw it I took it more as this weird sci-fi film where this kid has to make a choice and he also has a mental illness so you don't really know if what's going on is what's going on until the end uh, so I saw it as more or less like a like a, almost a Roger Corman-ish mystery, and I mean that in the best way possible, because Roger Corman, uh, we talked about this during our talk on The Flesh Eaters, did some movies, while they were cheap and everything, did some movies whose content were kind of boldish. You know, like, he did a movie, um, uh, I believe it was called The Undead, where they, they did time travel, and they also did psychotherapy and hypnosis and stuff, things that you don't really associate with drive-in movies you know uh usually you just throw a guy in a costume and have him attack half-naked women but um uh donnie darko you know it, it kind of had that loose you know almost not quite b movie but it had a cheesiness to it you know yeah. and and it was it was very fun in that aspect so i i kind of took those elements to heart a little bit stronger than i did anything involving uh narcissism and, and youth but those things now that I, now that you're bringing them up i completely see was in there you know they just it just wasn't probably because i didn't see the movie until i was in my 20s you know if i had seen it seen it when i was in high school then you know i probably it probably would have registered registered with me a little bit uh more but uh yeah i think i think the movie is very successful as this uh weird apocalyptic countdown uh sci-fi end of the world you know, what are you going to do about it type movie. How do you follow in that, Rick? Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely agree. Like, um, you know, like the aspects, the um, the post-apocalyptic notions and the uh, all the other things, like what's really interesting to me watching, uh, watching it now, because I just binged on like Richard Kelly movies for three days. <laughs> I'm so that, sorry. <laughs> is how many of the similar themes are there. Uh, things that reoccur across across um, his his work, and yeah, there's absolutely the angsty teen thing. But it's it's like there are two movies that are maybe more that coexist in Donnie Darko. There's like the sci-fi time travel thing. There's also the angsty teen slash mental illness drama. There's also something almost like John Hughes-like, but kind of filtered through... I'm going to do the terrible critical thing where you're like, it's like several different movies. But it's like <laughs> the, the blue velvet suburban aspect, like the what's lying underneath, like, um, you know, the, the placid environments. Because he really does create a, a pretty believable suburb that I bought into, anyways. It, it feels, you know, like this this bucolic landscape of trees. It's kind of reminiscent of Halloween, even, uh, when he bikes down streets. And then he goes out of his way to do the E.T. homages. They, uh, they name-check Halloween, too. Uh, when, when he goes to the movies with Jenna Malone, uh, the Marquis says Halloween and Frightmare. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's an accident. I think the thing about Richard Kelly that we'll probably discover, him, not me, uh, is that, like, the pastiche aspect his like ambitions encompass um all the like everything he's ever seen before and it becomes kind of fascinating when they butt up against each other um and i think in donnie darko it 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 ends up working in really 
interesting ways. I don't know. I really liked it. I enjoyed watching it again. Well, um, you mentioned a minute ago, like, the uh, aspect of watching all four of these movies in a row and how that, like, changes your perception on him as a, as a director um, and a writer. I... The thing I mostly struggled with was intent from minute to minute. Just like, is this supposed to be funny? Is this supposed <laughs> to be endearing? Like, what am I supposed to be engaging with? Uh, and the thing that really fucked me up the most is the next movie on the list, uh, Domino, which is a film he wrote but he didn't direct. Uh, I fucking hated this movie, and it made me go back and question all these things I'd given him, like, sort of the benefit of the doubt for. Um, this is 2005. Uh, Kira Knightley is a bounty hunter. Uh, she's the daughter of an actress. It's based off a real-life person. Um, and pretty much the whole movie feels like a Linkin Park music video where you just <laughs> leer at this girl uh, and drink some Bud Heavies and watch her ride a mechanical bull, and she shoots a gun every now and then. Um, and there's a few Richard Kelly moments where like they'll bring in like reality shows or like uh beverly hills 90210 is a running theme where like actors from that show play themselves in the movie uh so you can see why he would write this but it also was just so gross and like so early 2000s in a way that just like almost retroactively made me hate things about movies like southland tales um so i don't know if y'all had that similar response to domino but i'm very curious to see how this plays out for y'all a decade after it was released no, no, I, I still love Domino. I loved it when I first saw it on DVD. I, I wanted to see it in theaters, but I was initially turned off by it because my friends walked out five minutes in. Uh, they couldn't take the acid wash uh, look of the film or the uh, the crazy cutting back and forth and within style editing. Uh, I, I, on the other hand, love that kind of editing. I think that that takes a lot of uh, energy to, to put forth. It reminded me a little bit of Natural Born Killers uh, in how it would just, you know, cut, you know, so quickly. And and then, you know, an image would pop up that kind of represents what they're talking about, but maybe it doesn't, but maybe it does. Or maybe it holds more importance than what they're talking You know, like crazy stuff like that that you have to be have ADD to understand, you know, <laughs> or you have to be on coke or something, you know. And I love that sped up stuff, you know. And then, of course, you know, I was able to follow the, the narrative of the story very well. Uh, my friends weren't. They were like, what the hell's happening? And, and I was like, you're not understanding that? They're laying it out pretty pretty well. Um, it is most definitely a Richard Kelly film, even though he didn't direct it. It was a Tony Scott-directed film. And there are certainly Tony Scott uh, flourishes in it, but I really feel, feel this is a Richard Kelly uh, movie, kind of like in the same way Network is a Patty Chayefsky movie. You know, it's just, it's so, so much Kelly, you know. It may not be time travel, but it certainly shifts uh, time perspectives, you know, like continuity-wise. It, it moves forward, it flashes back, it sideways flashes a couple times. There's at least too, too many framing devices in this movie, <laughs> yeah. as far as that goes. I, I could see that being a problem, don't get me wrong, but I, I, I felt like, almost like, like he was a mathematician in this film, like with this movie, he almost like put it together so well that and I'm, I'm speaking very highly of this movie. A lot of people are going to disagree with me, and uh, but I, I I just I don't know. I really like that style. I really appreciate the effort put into it, and I think it must have been a headache to write, but I felt like it was put together really really well. 
Where yeah. do you land on that, Rick? <laughs> uh, I, I, found, I found it borderline unwashable. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Domino at all. I will live. I will leave the defense to Bill. Okay. Yeah. Well, just coming off a discussion of trash humpers where I defended it. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I like the unwatchable stuff. I like the uncomfortable or or the like you said, borderline unwatchable, where it's just literally something that you have to turn away from with, or you're going to vomit. It was like, yeah. it was like a, an aggressive, it's, it's very aggressive. Uh, yeah. If you actually, it's funny, I, if you go to IMDb and you just go through the full cast and crew, I've never seen so many editors in yeah. the sound, for instance, in the sound department. Like, seriously, there are, <laughs> I'm looking at it right now, there's a, a sound effects editor, a dialogue editor, another sound effects editor, someone, an editor of supervising dialogue, a dialogue editor, a supervising ADR editor, a Foley editor, a dialogue editor. You know, it just goes on and on. Like, and I think, I mean, and that's cool. Like, I really support creating jobs for editors. <laughs> <laughs> He's a but job creator. The, the cumulative effect seemed to me like it was just like punching me in the belly. There's no scene or like even shot that like plays out to any like effect. Everything is cut short for that uh, sort of manic uh, vibe they were going for. Um, and it, I, I would be okay with that if it was something like Southland Tales where the ideas and the ambition were big, but the movie is basically just leering at this like sexy bounty hunter and let's look at uh let's look at Kira Knightley's body a little closer and look how cool she is holding a gun. Which and is ironic just... that that it looks at her body a lot cuz she uses a, a a body double for the for the close-ups of her butt. Oh my god. Yeah, so it's kind of it's, it's kind of fraudulent. I'll tell you the exact moment uh, where I was like, fuck this movie. And it's, uh, they're about to have a shootout in a, um, I believe it's like a meth lab or something. Uh, and there's like a hundred people with guns in this in this living room, it looks like. Uh, and she diffuses the situation by giving a brawn panties lap dance to a gangster who waves guns around the whole time. And the movie's just like, look how cool this is. And I'm like, this fucking sucks. Make it stop. Why is this over two hours long? Please stop now. Because it's a great film. <laughs> no, oh, it's not Jesus. great because of duration, obviously. Uh, that, yeah, yeah. that would be ridiculous to, to suggest. Uh, it's like saying Interstellar is great because it's in space. Like, what? You know, no. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know why I have an affection for Domino other than I just feel like it's te- it's it. Re- I respond to it so well because of its technical ambition, because of the yeah. style. Uh, it's this is this is a situation where it's the style is the substance for me. Uh, whatever substance there would have been underneath uh, is you were talking before with our trash numbers discussion about uh, empty films. This mm-hmm. movie's pretty empty. The style is is very much the icing on the cake is the cake. This is a cake made of icing. <laughs> it's just gonna implode, but you know. Icing are terrible. I know, I know. It's just too much sugar. But but at the same time, you know, some kids like a lot of sugar. You know, but I, I think that the style it was going for is just from like probably the worst era of media. That like late nineties, early two thousands, like Swordfish, Gone in sixty seconds. Oh. Uh, corn videos like it, it it does have a, or um tra- traffic uh 
it, it it has a very specific aesthetic that it does very well. It just happens to be the most garbage era of media that we've experienced in my lifetime. It, it's certainly a very obtuse movie in its style. You know, it's very it's very over the top and in your face. It's almost like it's making fun of its own style. You know, like look look at how crazy we are. You know, like you guys like that that MTV uh, the current era of MTV corn sure. videos, like you just said. Well, here it is. Ramped up to ten, you know, or eleven, depending on what scale you're using. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I like movies that do stuff like that, that are kind of sarcastic in how and uh, how it's executed. You know, it's 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 colorful to say the least, which is ironic because a lot of the colors in this movie are are kind of muted and green. Uh, but <laughs> but I don't know. This is this is a movie that I I can't help but love. I, I, but then again, I love movies that are ridiculously weird or perceived to be bad and are unloved. You know, I I, I don't know. I gotta, I, I, I gotta say, I really appreciate your spirited defense of it. I <laughs> I didn't feel at all, but uh, yeah. that's cool that you did. <laughs> Okay, I mean, well, Ro- Roger Ebert was also a defender. Uh, it has like a 36 on Metacritic, which is pretty damn low. But uh, Ebert's like the top-rated review on that site aggregator. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, that's something. But then again, Roger Ebert also liked The Happening. <laughs> so, I mean, you yeah, know, well, it's, like, it's like a give-and-take well, kind of thing. <laughs> hey, now, I, I kind of like The Happening, too. Well, The <laughs> Happening is good for different subjects. reasons. Another podcast. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of stuff that kind of needs to be championed, I feel like Southland Tales from 2007, which was his second, uh, Richard Kelly's second directorial uh, film, is a movie that you kind of have to meet more than halfway. It's kind of like a wounded animal. Most people hate it. It is a mess in the same way the Domino is. It's over-edited. It's over-reaching uh, in its ambitions. Uh, it... It, it's a very aggressive film. Um, it's a it's another sci-fi piece like Donnie Darko, uh, except that Donnie Darko had about three or four really weird ideas, and Southland Tales is about four thousand. Uh, they just keep coming at you. It feels like a two and a half hour prologue that just never ends. Uh, they just like, oh, and here's this other thing. Uh, here is a. Um, deal with quantum teleportation. Now you're going to deal with teen horniness. Now you're going to deal with World War III. Uh, this is how the world ends because of George Bush. Uh, it just keeps piling on and on and on that I I kind of, like how we were talking about Trash Humpers earlier, I didn't enjoy it in the moment. Like it, it felt kind of um, like a lot of work on my part. But after the fact, just looking back at the immense experience of it, I was just like, damn, that there's nothing like that movie. It is very much its own thing. Um, so I have an affection for Southland Tales, even though it is a very flawed, uh, sprawling mess of a sci-fi work. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Uh, I don't particularly love this movie, but I find it endlessly fascinating. Uh, I uh, There's a film critic out there named Peter Labuza who wrote a book called... Um, Approaching the End, which is about post-apocalypse in cinema, and he wrote a chapter completely about Southland Tales, which changed my mind on the film completely. Uh, His perspective really uh, gave me additional insight that I maybe was lacking when I originally saw it, because when I originally saw it, I was going at it from the point of view that this was going to be like a, uh, a satire. 
know, this was going to be like some weird, this is how the world ends in Hollywood. And, you know, it was going to be kind of a comedy, you know? And, and then I see the movie and it's, it's this weird, weird mishmash of, uh, like you said, ideas that are like numerous and don't quite execute well, or they don't quite, uh, uh, articulate enough, you know? And, but when I read Labuse's uh, chapter, you know, it forced me to go back to it, and I, I actually own the graphic novel, uh, the first three chapters of the, of the Southland Tales story. I was if anybody uh, had read the the prequel and, and what happened. Yeah, I, I did, and I love the prequel. I think the prequel story is actually better than the movie uh, in terms of being coherent. Uh, but the movie itself, you know, if you take it as a different kind of a beast as you know a story that's not meant to be coherent but it's meant to be maybe coherent on a different level not quite literal uh lineal uh linear i'm sorry literal and linear uh <laughs> but it's supposed to be non-linear and supposed to be less literal uh then i think maybe we like he's like brian had just said before you could meet it halfway and begin to kind of appreciate it for its ideas the many ideas that it has yeah. Um, okay. So I'm I'm just gonna be really honest. I had never seen Southland Tales before um, two days ago. I think that's right. It's uh, okay. yeah, two days ago. I watched Southland Tales. I spent much of it making fun of it and actually writing down hilariously incongruous lines and really bad choices and just like giggling. I thought it was like a hilarious act of stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> Over the course of the rest of the day, I just kept talking to everybody about Southland Tales. And then I read a bunch of stuff about Southland Tales. I woke up the next day, and I fucking watched it again. Ha! <laughs> like, Southland Tales got into my brain. So, the fact of the matter is, I think I'm a Southland Tales fan. Because it's, like, like you guys are saying, it's so it's so misjudged and this actually might actually trend into why i like things like the happening like how did this come to be there are so many decisions that i find inexplicable but then i want to know why they were made and there's so much mythology built into it questionable goofball mythology like the shit stone people say to each other (laughs) (laughs) it it is a baffling film like what if yeah, and it's so I'm, I immediately watched it again. This movie that I was like, ha-ha, that was so dumb. I'm going to go watch it again. It's like fucking two and a half hours long, so it's not really like a small commitment. So, um, <laughs> yeah, like I, I think I've come out of this a bit of a fan of Southland Tales. I, I don't know what I don't know if I should apologize for that or what. But, no, uh, I, no, I like it as well. I, I think the key to it is kind of what Bill was saying earlier, though. I... I I do think it is an intentional comedy at parts uh, where you wouldn't normally, where you would normally want to laugh at it. I think the film is also laughing, uh, and I, I think the key to that, to me, I mean, we can go, we could probably read the cast list for this film for the next two hours because yeah. every person <laughs> in the world is in this movie. But specifically, well, I, I, uh, he the next two hours too, which nobody wants. <laughs> but yeah, specifically, he included like every SNL cast member from like the past twenty years, um, 
I think it is a political satire. Uh, I, I know it's easy to read into it because it is an ambitious sci-fi movie as like accidental comedy, but I think a lot more of it is intentional than you would normally think. Well, I think it's. I mean, Idiocracy came out the same year. Um, actually, like the same month, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's very much on uh, that satirical tip. It's just it's combined with so many other tropes and themes and ideas that that sometimes gets kind of like shifted in favor of these other things he wants to do, uh, which are like even wackier, you know what I mean? And so, but yeah, there are absolutely hilarious comedy moments. And I mean, the war is sponsored by Hustler and Bud Light. Like, come <laughs> on, that's an idiocracy joke, right? Like those things are there. And um, there's the uh, car commercial where the two Jeeps just fuck each other. And that's yeah. supposed to make you want to buy a car. Yeah, it's not particularly funny, but it's there. <laughs> you know? Like, I think a lot of the jokes fail to land, but there certainly are jokes. It's, it's not without jokes. But I think the jokes that don't land, it's almost as if they're, like, so aggressively juvenile. Like, almost in, like, a um, Freddy Got Fingered kind of way. Like, it's so dumb <laughs> that, like, I have to laugh at it. Like, Proposition 69, that's something a 12-year-old would find funny, uh, or there's like, like shit jokes. That sounds like something George Lucas would write. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think of this as a political satire by way of George Lucas and idiocracy, I mean, it's, it's not that far yeah, off. It's totally plausible, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Initiate Order 66. Can we talk for a second about the, um, the references in the film? Because uh, that's a really central thing, but it also runs through all of this stuff. Richard Kelly really likes quoting people. Oh, yeah, literary references. Yeah, it's, it's flow, like a, flow my tears, and then the policeman shoots the guy. Yep. Uh, T.S. Eliot's the, Hol- the Hollow Men forms the sort of, uh, the book ends of it, the, his weird reversal of, you know, not though this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper, and he says, not with a whimper, but a bang, which, again, sounds like what a 12-year-old would write. Uh, <laughs> Robert Frost. Uh, two roads diverge in the yellow wood. There's Langston Hughes talking about miles to go. There's a Karl Marx quote. Um, they quote Jane's addiction a bunch of times for no apparent reason. You know? <laughs> Kiss me, you, I guess you can count that uh, Killers music video as a quote almost as well. I think so, absolutely. Uh, Jericho Kane, uh, you know, is the the main character in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie End of Days. He's also a cop. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't catch that at all. Yeah, I That's just referred true. to his character as Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. No, it's it's literally Jericho Kane from End of Days. Uh, Rebecca Del Rio, who performs the Star Spangled Banner, is the woman who sings Holland Drive uh, when yeah. they go to the theater. Same person. Oh, wow. Uh, I know yeah. um, the Book of Revelations plays a b- really big part in the the plot structure as well. Uh, without a doubt, without a doubt, and of course, Don, you know, uh, Dwayne Johnson is making a movie that's like his his reason for existing in the film. So it's like the sort of meta thing. Uh, I guess Boxer Santoros and Pilot Abilene were both actors. That's how they knew each other, and they were in a movie called Donnie. <laughs> People were in shot, I guess. I would kill to see a version of that, um, the movie The Power, which is like the screenplay within this film, uh, that Dwayne The Rock Johnson is pitching, which is uh, the world ends because it slows down slowly over time and drives people insane. Like, right. I would totally watch that, and I want Rick- Richard Kelly to make it. <laughs> 
would I would actually watch it too now. I'm convinced. I want to see it. But yeah, I, I, I think that he knows how empty those literary references ring with people. Uh, he did the same thing with Graham Greene and uh, Donnie Darko, and he, I think in um, in uh, The Box, he references like so- Sauter, Sater, uh, Sartre. <laughs> I don't do philosophy. <laughs> I hate philosophy. I'm really bad at it. Um, but yeah, I, I think he knows how ridiculous it is to bring those lofty literary references in, but it works so well with his, like, ambitious aesthetic that he really just can't help himself. Like, he has to let you know, like, how well planned out and how, like, lofty his ideas are through those kind of, like... It's like him, he's like, no, there are, this is grounded in, you know, my, uh, my, my intelligence and my, my ideas. Like, this is not, (laughs) this is not just wacky, I got good ideas. Or what? Like, why is it that? Why is it there so much? I, I think it kind of, like, gives these ridiculous ideas this uh, pseudo-intellectualism. I think he knows I think he knows that, like, by tapping into things that people already respect, it makes things like predetermined fate and time travel sound a little less ridiculous. Yeah, totally. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. Uh, another favorite of mine was that, uh, you know, uh, Kiss Me Deadly is the movie they're watching on the TV when um, we first meet uh, Boxer Santoros and um, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Geller's character, right? That's Kristen playing. Now. Yes, Kristen Now. So when we first meet them, Kiss Me Deadly is playing. It's also playing on the uh, Zeppelin when they go up at the <laughs> end, which is pretty intense. So clearly we are supposed to pay attention to this. Kiss Me Deadly also involves picking up a stranger in the desert. Um, it also involves like a mystery or a conspiracy about some sort of magic power uh, in a box, which maybe is a future reference. I don't know. The evil doctor in Kiss Me Deadly is named Dr. Severin, which happens to be the name of the guy who plays Booger. He plays Dr. Severin X in Southland Tales. So right. He's getting lost. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, also, I think... I think- you can never call him like a half-assed writer. Like all these things are ridiculously planned out. Like uh, I was thinking after the fact, like, oh, I'm gonna go see if uh, Kristen Now's hit, hit single, um, "Teen Horniness Is Not a Crime." I'm, I want to go see if I can go listen to that clip on YouTube. And of course, there's like a full four-minute pop song <laughs> version of it that Sarah Michelle Gellar sang. Like he's not a half-assed filmmaker. It's not like these are like. Yeah tossed off ideas. He, if anything, he put too much thought in each of them. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I, I mean, I, we really could go on about Southland Tales for, like, the length of the film. There's there's so much going on in here. I don't know if there's anything particular you want to call out. Uh, I know, like, every actor in the world is in it. Uh, Beth Grant is really great in this and Donnie Darko. Probably two of her, like, uh more high-profile roles in the past 20 years, but sure. uh, The Rock, this is probably the first like really great The Rock movie for me, where it's like, oh, he's not just like a great pro wrestler uh, personality, he can also be in these like weirdo art films, and if anything, he should be doing more stuff like this. But um, I don't know if there's anything like particular y'all want to call out uh, from the film, because there are so many small details that, that could jump out at you. I, I liked uh, John Lovitz in the film. Uh, oh, he yeah. Played, he played a sleazy corrupt police officer 
who says, flow my tears, uh, <laughs> rather well, uh, <laughs> you know, but with also, like, a touch of, like, huh, I'm being cheeky, you know, ha, 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 and then he shoots the guy. Um, so uh, that stuck out to me when I saw the movie for the first time. I was like, oh, my God, it's John Lovitz, and he's slimy as hell. He's not even playing this funny. He's playing this as evil. <laughs> so I enjoyed that, and... Um, the scene where the woman wants to suck on Dwayne Johnson, uh, she's like, I, I want to suck your, you know, piece. She doesn't say that, but she, you know, uh, she's like, I will fucking kill myself if you don't let me suck your dick right now. I believe it's probably closer to the actual line. You said it for me. Thank you. Uh, I have a hard time saying those particular words. Uh, but, but she says it and Dwayne, Dwayne's reaction was like, what? (laughs) <laughs> that was that was perfect. That was exactly how a, a human being should respond to, to when a, a woman or anyone demands that. Uh, and uh, so those those were some thing, little things that I liked in the film. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I was not as big a fan of the uh, the suck my piece business. I thought that was kind of like a weird juvenile joke. I actually thought it kind of you know I guess. Uh, Eli Roth was originally supposed to do this, and then didn't. He was, he was in the film. He began yeah, no. yeah. He was in. He was in that scene, and so like the, the like toilet joke where he gets shot in a toilet, and then like seconds later, that other dude gets shot in a toilet. It was like, okay, that's enough toilet shooting. <laughs> but, uh, you know, whatever. But um, I, I actually, if I'm just gonna mention other things, I thought Sean William Scott was actually really good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. He, is um, a lot of other people in in the film seem like they're kind of like riffing on their characters or I mean it was shot the whole thing was shot in 28 days right holy shit is that true that is totally true and not only is it yeah. true it act ties in according to the internet to um, things that things that are written on people's arms about something 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 28 there are like a whole bunch of in jokes about how long it took to shoot the movie. It gets really fucking deep. I won't. That say sounds impossible. Like I cannot imagine shooting this in a month. Yeah, yeah. And then you know it was hacked and whittled down to what it is. Um, whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I find all that sort of stuff really amazing. But I would say I think Sean William Scott uh, gave a really kind of like emotive performance as his, you know, doppelganger twin, whatever you want to say. Um, I thought he was really great and. Uh, yeah, there were certain sequences <clears throat> that I just thought um, actually worked really well on their own terms, not in just this weird past. Like it's it's a it's a weird movie. It's a weird one for me because I really did come into it, you know, like I heard its reputation. I was trying to come into it with an open mind. I thought it was pretty bad, and then I couldn't get it out of my head for like twenty four hours, so I had to fucking watch it again. And uh, <laughs> now I know all these. Things I've been like reading about Southland Tales for days. I could just take up this podcast, just telling you guys trivia, and it'll be really annoying. <laughs> That's why we do that. but, you know, it's it's pretty fascinating. There's a whole lot of ambition that went into it, um, and if it doesn't quite cohere, uh, at least it's it's engaging. I think for the viewer. I mean, it is it is a flawed film, no doubt, but it is one of those flawed films that like you feel like you should champion because it is so over the top and idiosyncratic in a way that like, I mean, all three of us watch movies every day. They're not all going to jump out at you the way this film does. Like it it is a very 
striking experience. Um, and I think one of the things that helps it stand out in my mind is like something worthwhile is that it's booked book ended by these two really great moments. The, the opening of the film is a found footage, uh, end of the world, uh, nuclear attack on the 4th of July. And oh, it's a nice. really striking insight yeah. into the film. It's amazing. And then the end is Sean William Scott meeting his doppelganger uh, and touching, and the world sort of collapse in on their uh, sort of anomaly, like impossibility. And it reaches this really transcendent crescendo in the, in the heavens almost, and everything's crumbling around them. And it is such a beautiful moment to end the film on that it almost retroactively makes some of the toilet humor and some of the ridiculous uh, dick-sucking jokes seem almost more important in retrospect. Uh, like Almost like they were like intentional jokes. Like No one can achieve uh, a moment that artistic and great and have such like a shitty attitude at the same time like it almost makes the other stuff seem more important in retrospect it makes me like the film better just because it is bookended by such great moments that the stuff in between uh looks better in context like that and they are floating into the sky in an ice cream truck which is notable um <laughs> yeah. yeah there's there's your sugar my concern is that if i ever meet richard kelly like i can't shake the dude's hand because clearly based you know <laughs> I'm just going to end the world through the space-time continuum rift or whatever. Not with movie. a whimper, but with a bang, as that it's not worth with, repeating. Not with a whimper, but with a bang. I think it's... <laughs> well, um, I, I do think that that movie is flawed. Uh, Donnie Darko, obviously, I, it is like kind of an open uh, to interpretation whether or not that movie is flawed, but I, I do think it is a little, um, a little iffy whether or not that's like a wholly successful film, but I will 100% get behind the box. Uh, like I said, that is our uh, movie of the month on the site right now. I've been talking about it for like a few weeks already. Um, it's, it's an adaptation of a short story by Richard Matheson, uh, originally published in Playboy. Uh, this couple is propositioned by a mysterious figure um, to push a button that will kill a stranger, and if they do, they'll receive a million dollars, no questions asked. Uh, obviously they do push the button or the film would end early. Um, that's the first 20 minutes. Uh, that is the basis of the short story and the Twilight Zone short that followed. Everything that comes after that is just fucking insane, minute-to-minute twists. Uh, it's all just as absurd as what comes in Southland Tales and Donnie Darko. It's all just as far-reaching and probably overly ambitious but I can get behind what the box is selling without any reservations, uh, which I can't really say about the other two films, which I love, even though I know they're kind of like wounded animals. Um, I, I don't know if y'all have that same relationship with the box, but I really do think it's like his closest thing to a masterpiece he's made in his life. Uh, wow. Uh, I, I remember seeing the box in theaters with uh, my, one of my friends, and because uh, we were big, we're big Richard Kelly fans, and uh, wanted to see what he had uh, going for us, and. Uh, I I remember going into it having watched on YouTube B-roll footage from the movie uh, of just these exposition shots of NASA facilities, you know, just 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 you know far off shots of facilities with like this this uh, very interesting deep ambient music playing in the background, and I thought this is pretty uh, uh what's 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 the right word for it uh, ominous. This is pretty. Uh, 
this is pretty good at establishing what's what the movie's going to be, possibly. And I see the movie, and some people were going into it saying it was kind of Hitchcockian in some ways. I, I don't see it as Hitchcockian. Uh, this is definitely Richard Kelly. Uh, you know, like, it's kind of... It's it's one of those funny things where you say like oh this movie's the next you know Hitchcock it's like well why why can't it be the next Kelly why can't it be the first you know whatever you know of whoever well, this his is. his goal was to make a straightforward Hitchcockian thriller and this is what he thinks a like straightforward um, marketable Hollywood film looks like <laughs> and like you're movie. saying it's unmistakable as like a Richard Kelly film like only he could think that yeah. this is a marketable straightforward story because it's we anything but so it was good but there was not enough suspension in watery cylinders represented <laughs> yeah I, I would have loved more of that actually uh there, there was a lot of creepy stuff in this movie too like when he's walking through the library and the people are just following him almost like uh it follows the children of the corn or something, you know, uh, the, and, uh, you know, he goes into, he just accepts that he has to go into this water tube for some reason. And they're just like, make your decision. Which one do you want to go into? And, uh, and he's like, all right, sure. Fine. Uh, I'd have been like, wait, why do I have to make this choice? Why do, why can't I just walk out of this freaking building? You know? Uh, but he does it, and then he ends up on top of his wife, yeah. and blah, 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 he so on and so forth. Time. In the library, he also takes the time to start... In the library, he takes a really long time to start running, too. I, I yeah. noticed that very strongly. That's true, he does. I mean, he does. They go through, like, three floors and like, a long time where he's just, like, kind of looking back later. Himself, although apparently everyone is going after him, and eventually he starts running. But I was like, man, I just would have ran. <laughs> I, felt, I felt like this movie had a very comfortable discomfort to it. Uh, it, it like, what I mean by that is, it was it was grounded just enough for it to be so weird that you wouldn't walk out. You know what I mean? Like, it, it wasn't like like a mainstream audience could sit through this and be okay with it. They wouldn't. It wouldn't be like Domino or Southland Tales where they just couldn't take it. You know. Uh, th- this was something where I could take, um, I tried showing my mom a while back Orson Welles' The Trial, and she, in a, an hour into the movie, she was like, is this almost done yet? And I said, no, there's another hour. And she just rolled her eyes like, ah, you know, and, <laughs> and, and I was like, this is a great movie. What are you talking about? You know, and she, she just couldn't take it. So I just turned it off for her. Uh, but the box is something that if you want to introduce someone to Richard Kelly, I think it's a very easy introduction. I think it's his most balanced film. Like you're saying, like it has the weird ideas of Southland Tales, but it delivers them at the pace of Donnie Darko. Like it, it kind of like holds your hand as he walks you through his ridiculous uh, time travel, uh, the question of fate, and like whether or not humanity is worth saving, <laughs> which are kind of like big philosophical ideas. Uh, but but it is sort of delivered at like a deliberate pace, uh, where like Southland Tales is a much more, more manic energy, where it's like a pummeling assault. Yeah. I think it's a great way to put it. It does the the pacing and the sort of um, uh, I guess like the establishment of the setting, and um, you know you, you are kind of introduced to the uh, aspects of these people's lives in the way that you are in in narrative films, generally speaking, and you have kind of ground to stand on. Um, in a way that, for instance, Southland Tales never gives you. Yeah. Um, 
I, I think the acting here is a little uh, off in a way that makes you want to treat it like a camp movie. Like uh, James Marsden and... Um, why is her name escaping me? Cameron, Cameron uh, Diaz. Yeah, Cameron Diaz. They, they have kind of a, uh, a cheesy way about them. I think it works for the Twilight Zone aspect of the film. Um, honestly, when he drives off and she's like, hate you, and he's like, hate you too. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But it, That's a which, it works. Which comes back later when the spoilers, when, when whatever happens, happens at the end. Uh, it's like... You know, well, I guess you really did hate me. All right. I I think it works for the Twilight Zone aspect. Um, Going back, now knowing who she is, watching Gillian Jacobs in this, I need to see her in more dramatic roles. Um, I've I've seen a couple sort of dramatic turns from her this year, and I didn't know that she was in the box. So, like, I'm just, like, really into her career right now, just seeing her do more stuff like this. But I feel like she's, like, not trapped but like kind of lost in a sea of actors who are kind of overdoing it uh <laughs> yeah. yeah well did did you guys know um the the personal aspect of uh richard kelly's characterization here yeah uh, i know that his dad worked for nasa right because his dad worked yeah right yeah his dad worked on the viking mars probe his mom was in fact a school teacher in texas actually diaz and uh marsden spent time with his parents and uh, her Texas thing is like a, a mimic of his mom. So, yeah, my buddy uh, Boomer, who my buddy Boomer, who writes for the site, uh, went to a Q and A for Southland Tales, and he asked Richard Kelly about the foot because uh, Brittany had asked in our our uh, roundtable on the on the movie, the box, like, I wonder what's going on with the foot. And apparently that was a thing that his dad did for his mom, and the the prop is a real prop of Cameron Diaz's foot, uh, sort of modeled after this real-life event, which is just so bizarre, considering, like, all the things that happen in this movie, that that uh, is, like, based in reality. is just something weird to, like, wrap your head around. So weird. It's so weird. I don't know what to do with it. But, yeah, I mean, the box is really... Uh... It's clearly a more accomplished um, thing as like a presentation to mainstream audiences, I guess. But it's weird that it simultaneously draws on these like really personal aspects. I don't know. It's, strange. it's also weird that it seems to be the film that doesn't really have a lot of cult cachet. Like, I feel like Southland Tales is flashy enough to have people talking about it a lot, as as, as it deserves to be talked about, because it is such a sprawling work. Um, and Donnie Darko, obviously, is always going to have fans uh, for every fresh batch of college freshmen that come into the world. Uh, there will always, always be fans of Donnie Darko. Um, but I feel like the box is sort of being forgotten as like probably his most accomplished work. Um, it's, it's sort of being left by the wayside, when, when really I think it's his best film to date, and sadly the only thing, he hasn't done anything since 2009, uh, so it's kind of like a weird for him to go out on a high note like that and uh, be forgotten for, for putting in his like most measured work. Since you've been working on it for so long, do you know, what is he doing now? Is he focusing on graphic novels? Is he doing, what's going on with Richard uh, Kelly? I know he's running Darko, or at least he was running Darko Entertainment for a while, which was like a movie production company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they produced um, this movie, about, I think it was based on off a book called uh, Do They Have Beer in Hell or something? <laughs> yeah. Gross. I hear it's poor. 
quite poor. <laughs> According to Nathan Rabin, it is quite poor. Uh, yeah, that, that movie all, sounds disgusting. That's all I know he's done, that, that he produced that. that. That's it. Right. He's on Twitter still. Yeah, well, that's a shame, because the dude's got a bunch of ideas. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. Well, I, I, like I said earlier with Donnie Darko, I think if he returned to that spooky Halloween uh, suburbia area, he could make a marketable movie that people would go watch. Like, yeah, his I version mean, of It Follows or something, I think, would strike a chord with people. I think in both Donnie Darko and The Box, um, he does a pretty excellent job uh, setting setting the stage in terms of, like, the visual aspect, the framing of, of the neighborhoods and stuff. Like, it, it feels like there is something ominous afoot. He does that visually in, in pretty interesting ways. Like, I, uh, you guys still there? <laughs> yeah, sorry, you kind of lagged a little bit. Um, I think they were kind of losing our uh, our footing. <laughs> but um, it might, it might be a, as good a time as any to like bring it to a close. Um, sure. I, I, I think uh, if, if we're going to ch- recommend anything to read on Swamp Flicks right now, uh, like I said, this is our movie of the month. So we had that article where um, Boomer went and did a Southland Tales Q&A where he like asked a couple questions from Richard Kelly from the audience. Uh, that was really interesting. Um, I, I tracked uh, the box's trip from Playboy magazine to the big screen. Uh, we had our uh, opening roundtable of the month on uh, the box about a month ago. Um, so if you're interested in Richard Kelly, that would be uh, stuff on the site I would recommend. Uh, Rick, do you have anything on Luddite Robot you particularly want to plug right now? Um, no, not really. I think, um, uh, you should just check out the general stuff. I've been writing about horror since October is coming up, or Shocktober, as the internet likes to call it. Um, I'm going to be writing about horror movies a bunch, so if you're into horror and suspense and spooky shit, uh, I got a bunch of that coming up, so check it out. Check it out. Yeah. That uh, the vegan horror stuff you've been doing lately has been really interesting. It's not something I've ever like read before. Uh, so th- that was that was something I've been kind of keeping track of lately that you've been writing. Right on. No, thanks. Um, yeah, I have uh, more of that going on actually. I think I'm gonna have a chance to talk to somebody else who's been doing that for a lot longer. Um, the whole notion behind that is about you know notions of of humans and non-humans in horror cinema and uh, the ways we think about these things and the way they're mediated through our images. So, um, yeah, probably some of that coming up in the next month, too. Badass. What what do you have going on, Bill? Uh, I got a review for The Birth of a Nation coming up on Occupy.com very soon. Uh, I've got a review of Uncle Kent 2 coming to MovieBoozer.com also very soon. And I may be working on a new column series for a uh, website called Vague Visages. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, vague visages? I don't know. It sounds like <laughs> massages. Uh, yeah. Which is kind of weird, but it's a film criticism site. Uh, it'll be about New Orleans um, or Louisiana-made film, uh, hopefully. I'm still working out the details of that. And next week, I may be making an appearance on WWL-TV's The 504. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Awesome. Um, also, uh, if I'm going to plug any more Richard Kelly stuff... Uh, 
There's a podcast called We Love to Watch that you should check out if you like this podcast. Uh, we end up covering a lot of the same stuff. Uh, Rick was on one of their episodes about Predator 2, I believe. Um, I'm going to be on one about The Fly coming up. We just covered The Fly on this podcast. They just covered Southland Tales. Uh, both of us have covered Possession. Um it's really getting kind of eerie how much similar ground we're covering. <laughs> Who's going to win? Like, are you, is there, are there points? Like, is there a certain point at which one of your podcasts wins? Uh, well, We Love to Watch has, like, twice as many listeners, so I'm sure they're winning. <laughs> if that's the measurement. Someone just needs to take, take a bat to Peter's leg. and you know. <laughs> I think Aaron's the one you need to take out. Oh, I think P- Peter's going to live forever, no matter what. <laughs> right, I'll, go, I'll get Aaron for you. <laughs> right. uh, well, yeah, um, next month, uh, in about two weeks, we're going to do two episodes on Halloween movies. I'm not really sure what shape that's going to take, but uh, tune in next time. Th- thank you all very much for joining me over Skype today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, bye, y'all.